Documents obtained by Congress show that the FBI sought to develop sources within the Catholic Church. Why does the U.S. government seem to be weaponizing law agencies against people of faith? House Judiciary Committee member Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana is here to tell us. And the Chinese Communist government has openly violated the terms of the deal with the Vatican by unilaterally appointing a new bishop. We'll explore their aggression with China expert and president of the Population Research Institute, Stephen Mosher. And the persecution of Christians is on the rise all over the world, but what's driving it? Moral theologian and author Tom Williams is here with analysis in his new book, The Coming Christian Persecution. Finally, Oscar winner Russell Crowe is here with a special preview of his new film, The Pope's Exorcist. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover, but first, some news. Just hours before the start of Holy Week, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center issued a cease and desist order to a Franciscan friary ending a longstanding contract to provide Catholic pastoral care to military veterans and servicemen. The order directed those Franciscan priests to immediately halt religious services on the center's grounds just days before Holy Week. USCCB president and archbishop of the military services, Timothy Broglio, called Walter Reed's decision incomprehensible. The contract was instead awarded to a secular defense contracting firm that cannot provide Catholic clergy to the facility's patients. According to Archbishop Broglio, the action represents, quote, a glaring violation of service members' right to the free exercise of religion. On Wednesday, the archbishop issued another statement. He said the archdiocese, whose primary concern is the pastoral care of individuals, has been assured that the situation will be rectified and waits to learn of the outcome of the efforts to ensure appropriate care so that the First Amendment rights of patients and staff at the medical center will be respected. We'll continue to monitor this story. And a disturbing story surfaced recently that shows the FBI attempted to develop sources within Catholic parishes and communities in order to combat what it calls domestic terrorism. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan obtained documents to that effect last month and is currently heading a select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. To get answers, joining me is U.S. Congressman from Louisiana's 4th District, a member of the House Judiciary Committee and that select committee, Mike Johnson. Congressman, thank you for being here. We've been seeing evidence of government agencies becoming increasingly weaponized for several years, but with the release of the FBI documents uncovered by your committee, why do you think there's this particular focus on Christian churches, more specifically traditional Catholic parishes, as alleged hotbeds of domestic terror? Yeah, the very idea is absurd, but I think the intent behind this is obvious. I think that the Biden DOJ and the whole administration are 
quite literally targeting people who disagree with them. And uh, there's no better culprit group uh, in that category than, than traditional Catholics, because many of them are committed pro-lifers, and they have uh, positions on, on social and moral issues that disagree with the White House's narrative. And so this is really an alarming story, Raymond, because we've been seeing uh, the targeting of, of people like that. We saw, for example, concerned parents who showed up at school board meetings over the last couple of years to uh, mm -hmm. share their disagreement, protest over curricula and, and uh, mass mandates and the like. But now, now they are literally, quite literally, the FBI hatched a plan to go into Catholic churches to try to recruit clergy and, and lay leaders to spy on parishioners, to to report and monitor on uh, them and to report on them to the FBI. It is just shocking. Congressman, is this all related to that FBI memo we learned about several months ago that went out of the Richmond field office and, according to, to Congressman Jordan, went to every field office in the country, warning them about the uh, white supremacy and domestic terrorism possibilities in these traditional Catholic communities? Yes, and they actually came up with a term. They call it radical traditional Catholic ideology, whatever that means. Uh, you can translate that to people who are actually committed to their faith. Uh, but that was the, the the target group. And so they sought to, in the memo, it says specifically they wanted to even talk to uh, what they referred to as, quote, mainline Catholic churches to try to find some who might disagree politically or philosophically or theologically with others uh, to recruit effectively undercover agents to be in these parishes. It it really is just an amazing thing. And the, and the answer to the question is yes. This document was circulated uh, to field offices around the country. What we don't know right now is how far it went and how many FBI employees hmm. actually began to act on this. But we are seeking those answers right now. Hmm. The Judiciary Committee subpoenaed the FBI for its records in this matter, showing they plan to use churches as, quote, new avenues for tripwire and source development, end quote. What does that mean? And what are you being told by FBI officials? Well, not much yet, because we began to request information documentation on this as soon as we found out about it. Apparently, this memo that we're discussing was circulated in January. We began, a, a, a whistleblower presented this to us. We began to seek the documents in early February. They stalled. Finally, they sent us just 18 pages, heavily redacted, and that's why we had to subpoena the director of the FBI himself, Christopher Wray. We are anxiously awaiting those documents because we have many more questions than we have answers at this point. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, it really is a scary thing. The idea that the government, the Department of Justice itself, the FBI, could be targeting people simply for exercising their traditional faith, uh, it's a scary thing. When religious freedom is taken from a people, their political freedom soon follows, and, and there's nothing greater at stake than our fundamental freedoms here. No, no, the, the FBI was actively recruiting undercover agents, it seems, from this documentation to monitor and report on these traditional Catholic parishes and communities. At the same time, Congressman, the Biden DOJ recommended no jail time for this trans activist who vandalized a Catholic church in Washington state. Uh, this individual sprayed graffiti, destroyed a statue of the Virgin Mary, and assaulted a parishioner. But the DOJ is offering a plea deal. I mean, th th this is mind-boggling and doesn't seem to follow uh, the jail time they requested for Mark Hulk, the, uh, the pro-life activist in Philadelphia who they requested 11 years in prison for. That's exactly right. And remember, 
in the more than 100 documented cases of vandalism, firebombing, Molotov cocktails through the windows of, mm. of, of uh, crisis pregnancy centers and Catholic centers after the Dobbs opinion that overturned Roe, the FBI did exactly nothing. They didn't investigate any of those. They didn't uh, dispatch or use any resources at all to try to address it until the Republicans got the majority in the House and we passed a, a resolution in the House earlier this year demanding action by the FBI. Six days later, they finally began to investigate some of these. But as you see here in this example, they're not even recommending prosecution. And so it's just an incredible double standard. And at the end of the day, Raymond, what it does is it it really diminishes the people's faith in our institutions themselves. And that is a really dangerous thing. Well, it's also an example of the government and the force of the DOJ targeting people of faith, law abiders, while allowing these malcontents and vandals to basically destroy and do what they will against people of faith. So it, it, I, I don't see how this isn't a flagrant violation of the First Amendment right to practice religion and freedom of expression. If you're impeding people from going to their house of worship or trying to destroy it, would seem to me on its face prosecute, prosecutable offenses. Yeah, it, it is a blatant violation and, and complete disrespect for our most fundamental freedoms protected by the First Amendment. We list religious liberty first. It's our first freedom, quite literally, because the founders understood how essential mm. it is to us as, as Americans, but as human beings. There's no more fundamental right than the right of conscience, the right to uh, live out your faith. And that's what's at stake here. And they're using the apparatus of our justice system to, to go after people who are doing that. You know, it has a chilling effect, too, mm. because if we don't get a handle on this and stop it, I mean, who's going to want to go to church if they have to look over their shoulder and wonder if someone's spying on them and starting a threat tag file at some FBI regional office? Um, it, it really has huge implications for, for our most fundamental liberties, and, and uh, that's why we're on it. No, it we're going to continue to press and get the answers. Yeah. How, how will you get the FBI to respond? It seems like they're holding, withholding information from the committee. I know uh, Congressman uh, Jordan has been asking them, and, and uh, new letters were just sent. Josh Hawley sent uh, requests, uh, Marco Rubio and others. But is the FBI responsive at this point? Last word. Well, they have to be. And ultimately, we have three powers in the House of Representatives. We can investigate, put, uh, put the evidence out there for the American people to evaluate it themselves. Uh, of course, we have the oversight responsibility to bring reforms and make sure this never happens again. And ultimately, we have the power of the purse. And so if the FBI cannot follow and respect the Constitution, they may not deserve all the funding that they're requesting. And, and we're the ones that are in charge of that. Mm. Congressman Mike Johnson, I thank you for being here and for your time. And you may have the best backdrop of any office I've ever seen on television. Thank you for being with That's us. That's my old law Thank you. Good to see you. Pretty good. Thank you. The communist Chinese government is ramping up its aggression toward Taiwan this week. And it appears that China is now openly violating its agreement with the Vatican again. Joining me to discuss all of this and much more, president of the Population Research Institute, author of The Bully of Asia, Stephen Mosher. Stephen, thanks for being here. Uh, the Chinese government has installed a new bishop of Shanghai last Tuesday. Without the Vatican's approval, it's a total violation of the Vatican-China agreement. Bishop Joseph Shin Bin of Hyman was appointed to the Diocese of Shanghai by this state-sanctioned bishops' conference. Now, according to the Vatican spokesman, Matteo Bruni, the Holy See had been informed a few days prior to the move of the decision by the Chinese authorities to transfer the bishop, but only learned of the installation by the media the day it happened. 
In a recent article, Pope Francis's biographer Austin Ivory writes, the basis of the Holy See's 2018 agreement with China over bishops is the fruit of Benedict XVI's 2007 letter to the Chinese people, seeking collaboration and dialogue. The agreement is a first imperfect step, yet has borne fruit. Bishops are all now in communion with Rome. The Pope is the last word over episcopal appointments. And Chinese Catholics are far less likely now to be accused of loyalty to a foreign power. Steve, your reaction, and is any of that true? Well, I don't know where to start, Raymond, because it's all false. First of all, uh, the idea that, that Benedict XVI, may God rest his soul, is somehow responsible for this flawed agreement between the Chinese Communist Party and the Vatican is nonsense. Uh, we all recall that Pope Benedict broke off negotiations with the Chinese Communist Party because he was afraid, uh, based on good evidence, long-standing evidence, that they would violate any agreement they signed. That is also what I told, of course, Cardinal Pietro Perlin, the Cardinal Secretary of State, back in the summer of 2018. I said, before he mm. signed the agreement, I said, you must understand that the Chinese Communist Party has a history of violating every agreement it has signed uh, internationally, uh, almost without exception. They will violate this one. The agreement will be used against Chinese Catholics and will not benefit them, but will ultimately redound to their to their harm. And what I what I didn't say, because what I didn't know at the time was if the agreement would be kept secret, which makes everything right. worse because the poor Chinese Catholics don't know what it says. All they know is what the Chinese Communist Party told them that it says. And what the Chinese Communist mm. Party told them what that it says is that they must all join the Catholic Patriotic Association. Uh, they must all, uh, you know, swear loyalty to their local bishop, whether it's assigned by the Chinese Communist Party or approved by Pope Francis. So that's what they've been told. And I believe that the Sino-Vatican Agreement has done its work. In other words, four years later, the underground church has been effectively annihilated. All of the Catholics were forced by the understanding of the Sino-Vatican Agreement they were given by the Chinese Communist Party to come out and register with the government. Now the government knows who they are, where they are, and is surveilling them and controlling them. And they've just tightened the regulations on religious activity in China once again. You can't go to mass in China, Raymond, unless you apply every time on an app on your phone for permission. If you set foot inside the door of a church without permission on any given Sunday, uh, you're violating the regulations and, and you'll be punished. Hmm. Uh, Stephen, how many Catholics have to die or lose their faith in the name of this dialogue? That is the, that is the golden calf that everyone, from the top to the bottom, everyone who apologizes for this agreement, they say, well, this is in the name of dialogue. You have to begin somewhere. It's imperfect. Doesn't dialogue usually include two participants, one that's alive and can talk back? Well, it, it certainly does, and dialogue requires two sides. And the only, the only side that's been making concessions and trying to reach an agreement and trying to be conciliatory is the Vatican, which is all well and good if there was any sort of reciprocity, if there was any sort of response from the Chinese Communist Party. I'm afraid that what's happened is similar to what happened in 1958 during the anti-rightist campaign. People may remember there was something that Chairman Mao said, uh, let a let 100 
flowers bloom, let let a hundred schools mm -hmm. of thought contend. He privately said, I only said that to lure the snakes out of their holes so we could cut their heads off. I'm afraid that the Chinese Communist mm. Party only signed the Sino-Vatican Agreement so that he could lure Catholics out of the underground church. And once the Communist Party knows where they are and who they are, it can then annihilate, annihilate the church in China by, by closing in the walls on even the above-ground church. This appointment of the Bishop of Shanghai, the two most important seas in China are the Sea of Beijing, the capital, and the Sea of Shanghai, which is the commercial center for the country. And to name Bishop Shunbin to be the head of the Sea of Shanghai without even notifying the Vatican shows, I think, that the, uh, the Sino-Vatican agreement is now, whatever it once was, is now clearly a dead letter. Even, even the Vatican uh, had nothing to say, no defense against this obvious violation of what was supposed to be an agreement over the appointment of bishops. Well, that's now happened several times. Last fall, November, it right. happened when, in, in Jiangxi, where they appointed a bishop without notifying the Vatican. And the Vatican scrambled to say, well, you know, we're talking to the they, they They haven't offered any excuse this time. So I think even they know that uh, that the jig is up. Meanwhile, the situation on the ground in China has only gotten worse for the faithful. Churches have been destroyed. People are harassed. Uh, their faith is being conscripted and, and stamped out. Does the Vatican need to pull out of this non-deal at this point, or at least admit, Steve, that this was a huge, huge error, and that because of their action, we have dead Catholics and a, and a squashed underground church in China, which is exactly what our friend Cardinal Zen told them would happen, by the way. Yes, uh, and, and he was absolutely right. He's been right all along. Uh, he, of course, was involved in the early negotiations in the 90s and under Pope Benedict, and uh, he has been one of the foremost critics of this current agreement, uh, quite rightly so. Uh, the agreement is a dead letter. I believe the terms of the agreement should be made public. And the Vatican should simply say that we're terminating the agreement because uh, the Chinese Communist Party have, has violated the terms of it. Now, I don't believe that things could get any worse for the Catholic Church in China, quite frankly, Raymond. And I say that because now, in China, all religious activity has to promote the Communist Party line, has to promote the Chinese Communist Party's ideology, and has to promote the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, which means core leader, dictator, president for life, Xi Jinping. You have to do those things. And we are now at the point in China where I believe that homilies are going to be written by Communist Party apprachics, making sure that the priests from the pulpit say those things. We know that the Bible in China now has been rewritten to conform to Communist right. Party doctrine. So you have stories in the Bible like the woman caught in adultery, where Jesus comes upon men about ready to stone the woman to death. And and says, let you among you who is without sin cast the first stone, and they all go away, and he forgives the woman. In the Chinese Communist Party's version of that story, uh, Jesus asked them, uh, you know, to, to let you among you who is without sin cast the first stone. But then when they all go away, the Communist Party says that our Lord stones the woman to death himself, which is a total, total fraud and sham. But that's what uh, the Chinese now are being forced to read in the Bibles that they're being hand-given by the Chinese Communist Party.
No, no, it's it's it breaks my heart. We've report. We're probably the only broadcaster that has reported that, Steve, and has been doing so consistently. The the distortion of the word of God. If that's your primary job as a church to convey the word of God to His people and to bring them to salvation, when you can't make good on that one promise, what are you doing? And I, I, it does boggle the mind and breaks the heart, really, reading those stories and seeing these homilies that have leaked out of China. It's, uh, you know, we, we should pray for these people. We should do so every day, as I do. Um, Steve, the Chinese launched three days of large-scale military drills in response to the Taiwanese president meeting with U.S. lawmakers early last week at the Reagan Library. Uh, these military drills included China's military practicing blockades and releasing an animated simulation of how China could attack Taiwan. Now, Steve, we have seen Chinese military drills in the past near Taiwan, but these drills were played out on state-run TV in China and even shown on big screens in major Chinese cities. What message are the Chinese communists looking to send here? And how soon do you think a Chinese attack on Taiwan could be? Well, you know, I have a rather unique perspective on this because I was an officer in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War. I sailed through the Taiwan Straits uh, many times on board different ships. I also lived on Taiwan for several years. In fact, I lived about two miles uh, uh, from the main beach where any invasion force would be landing. Uh, Taiwan is not an easy island to conquer uh, because the east coast is all rugged mountains and the west coast is uh, is mudflats, so there are very few beaches on which an invading force could actually land. So it's an easily defensible island. But we have to be clear uh, about our mm. intention to help Taiwan defend itself. And and so far, we've been delaying shipments to Taiwan of the necessary defensive equipment they would need to defend themselves against a Chinese armada. As to when China would attack, it could happen any time. But Xi Jinping, dictator for life, has said that the People's Liberation Army must prepare by 2027 to launch an invasion. Now, I wouldn't take that uh, particular calendar date to heart, because if your enemy tells you they're going to invade in 2027, they might be planning on invading tomorrow and trying to let you mm -hmm. give you a sense that you have a little breathing room when, in fact, you may not. China and Taiwan separated in 1949, following a civil war. However, the current Chinese government has said the island is obligated to rejoin the mainland by force if necessary, and they threatened that if President Tsai met with U.S. officials, it could lead to war. Now, this is the president of Taiwan at the Reagan Library last Wednesday. Watch. It is no secret that today, the peace that we have maintained and the democracy which have worked hard to build are facing unprecedented challenges. We once again find ourselves in a world where democracy is under threat and the urgency of keeping the beacon of freedom shining cannot be understated. Steve, it sounds like she has every intention to keep Taiwan independent and not end up like Hong Kong. But can the Taiwanese people fight China, and should allies be preparing for that Chinese invasion? 
Well, well, first of all, let, let's remember that President Tsai is a democratically elected president of Taiwan. The majority of the people on Taiwan who consider themselves to be Taiwanese, by the way, and not Chinese, voted to put her in office, and she represents their voice. She's speaking for them. Uh, Taiwan has now had been a full-fledged democracy for over 30 years. It has had five, six presidential elections, peaceful transfer of power from one political party to another. The ultimate test of a democracy is a peaceful transfer of power. 78% of the people on Taiwan say they would fight in the event of a Chinese invasion of the island. And also remember this, a little history. Uh, Taiwan has never been a part of the People's Republic of China. It was a Japanese colony from 1895 to 1945. Then it was part of the Republic of China. And that's where Chiang Kai-shek's forces retreated to in 1949 after losing the civil war on the mainland. But the Communist Party, which rules mainland China, has never ruled Taiwan. And the Taiwanese people now, quite frankly, if there were a free and open vote, uh, they would only get uh, a small percentage of the population. Nobody on Taiwan effectively wants to join mainland China. They want to have peaceful relations, of course. They don't want to be in a fighting war. Uh, they want to trade with, right. with mainland China, but they certainly don't want to, uh, to be a part of it. So the, the, the wishes of the people on Taiwan need to be respected, and, and we need, I think, to, to stand with them. There are economic reasons to do that, because Taiwan manufactures most of the chips in the world. There are security reasons right. to do that, because Taiwan is part of the cont island containment uh, of China that begins in South Korea and goes through Japan, down through the Philippines, Taiwan, and down into the South China Sea, where our allies are uh, Australia and increasingly India. So if we lose Taiwan, uh, China, the People's Liberation Army, has open access to the Pacific Ocean, and their next stop would be, I don't know, Hawaii. Hmm. During the Taiwanese president's visit to the U.S., House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Steve, said of the relations between the U.S. and Taiwan this. The friendship between the people of Taiwan and America is a matter of profound importance to the free world. And it is critical to maintain economic freedom, peace, and regional stability. Steve, does the Biden administration have any influence on China? I mean, I know Biden said he would dispatch military before they walked it back, should China invade Taiwan. But what's the real story here? Well, the, the real story is no one knows what our aging president would do in the event of a, a Chinese attack on Taiwan. And no one knows who would actually be making that decision, sadly, because it doesn't seem like uh, President Biden knows what the U.S. current policy is, because three times he said we would defend Taiwan, and three times an anonymous White House official has walked that back. So uh, who would make the call to defend Taiwan? I don't know. But what we should be doing now is, is not thinking about an actual invasion. We should be preempting that invasion by arming Taiwan to the teeth. We should make Taiwan into such a porcupine that China would not dare touch it. And it would be fairly easy to help Taiwan defend itself against an invasion by providing anti-ship missiles. Uh, we're currently, however, depleting our armories by sending everything, virtually everything we have uh, to Ukraine. And uh, 
Apparently, according to the latest uh, games that we've carried out, war games that we've carried out, our inventory of things like anti-ship missiles would only last a week in the event of conflict. But as I say, we should be thinking here of deterrence. We should be thinking here of peace through strength, which, of course, was President Reagan's mantra. And instead, we seem to be, 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 be confused about what our role would be and, and how important Taiwan is in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, well, it's certainly in our national interest, given all the semiconductors for these electric cars and devices everybody relies on. This is where the majority of them come from in the world. We only make, what, 12 percent of them here any longer in the United States. So it is of major national importance. Forget the strategic importance that you pointed out a moment ago. Last month, China's President Xi Jinping and Russian President Putin signed an agreement which they say brings their ties into a, quote, new era of cooperation. And they're working toward what they call responsible dialogue to resolve the Ukraine crisis. President Xi said the following. We hope that the strategic partnership between China and Russia will, on the one hand, uphold international fairness and justice, and on the other hand, promote the common prosperity and development of our countries. Fairness and justice, Steve. How did this administration and the world allowed these two countries to join forces? And what kind of a threat does this pose to the U.S. and the international order? Well, those of us who are uh, old enough to remember the 1950s when the Sino-Soviet bloc existed, where China and the Soviet Union were working together to advance the spread of communism, know what a grave threat that combined power can be. I mean, it's a power capable of dominating Eurasia, uh, which is Europe and Asia, which is the world island, and from there, of course, capable of dominating the rest of the world. I have argued mm -hmm. in uh, for decades that our primary, one of our primary foreign policy goals should be to keep China and Russia divided. We now inadvertently have blundered into uniting them. And this happened, of course, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin, as you recall, visited Beijing and signed at that time six agreements uh, forging closer cooperation between the two Asian giants. Now that cooperation is getting even closer. And it seems that uh, China is now contemplating not just sending spare parts for Russian weapon systems, but perhaps sending entire weapon systems to Russia to help its invasion of Ukraine. And of course, I'm very much afraid that while we are distracted by the situation in Ukraine, instead of working uh, towards peace as we should be, uh, that we will see other actors, China itself, move against Taiwan, perhaps North Korea move against South Korea, perhaps Syria and Iran mm. attacking Israel. Uh, now is a time when bad actors will be seizing upon American weakness and American distraction, I think, to advance their own interest in the world. And that's not, uh, that's not good for us. No. And, uh, and look, you were on the forefront of warning about the Chinese hegemon, this idea that they saw themselves as preeminent in the world, and now we're seeing them as preeminent in the world. Last month, China negotiated a deal in Beijing to bring together Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now, this came as a real surprise to most in the world, especially in the U.S., which has been a key player in the region. What is China's endgame in the Middle East, Steve? 
and by get, get, gaining control over not only Russia, Russian territory, but having a hand and a major influence in the Middle East, what challenges does that pose to the United States? Well, well China is setting up a network of what I call Sino-states. Uh, those are countries where the governments have been bribed or compromised or corrupted into working with China to undermine the current international order, which is led by the United States, and replace it with a Beijing-centered mm -hmm. international order, which will be obviously inimical to U.S. interests. And, and it, is, it is a reflection of the weakness of the Biden administration that they were able to drive a wedge between Saudi Arabia, uh, which historically for decades has been an ally of the United States and the Middle East, and in fact forge and peace agreement over Yemen between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Obviously, they're, 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 they have uh, view each other across the, the Sunni-Shia divide, right, two major camps of the Islamic faith. And they historically have been, have been enemies within the Middle East. Now, for China to broker a deal between the two of them suggests that, uh, that it is China now that in the Middle East whose word will carry more weight rather than the United States. And I have to say at this point that the Biden administration has not only uh, criticized Saudi Arabia and driven it into China's arms, it has also been unsupportive of Netanyahu and, and, and Israel, which of course emboldens Israel's enemies in the Middle East, Syria and uh, Hamas and Iran, of course, to move against Israel at this time. So uh, weakness is destabilizing not just in the Far East vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan or in the, the Korean Peninsula. It's destabilizing in the Middle East as well. And, and the, yeah. the underlying motive here, I think, for Saudi Arabia was China has promised to give it nuclear technology if Saudi Arabia agrees to accept Chinese currency instead of the U.S. dollar for oil purchases. So this undermines dollar supremacy. At the same time, it enables Saudi Arabia to get what it has long wanted, and that is access to the technology that may enable it to build nuclear weapons. So among other things, the Chinese Communist Party is engaging, I think, in long-term nuclear proliferation around the world, which will only destabilize wow. things further. These are not good signs no, it, for the United States. The weakening no, of the dollar, the weakening I of the agree. international. Yeah, and even our allies in Europe are now abandoning us. You got France going its own way, Germany going its own way. I mean, but at least we have Ireland. <laughs> He's holding on to Ireland, Steve. Uh, I want to get to a piece you wrote in the New York Post about how China is working to gain economic dominance around the world. Uh, th there are several countries from the South Pacific to South America whose ports and railroads, resources, even their economies, are in China's pockets. You refer to them as Sino-states, as you did a moment ago. How did places like Sri Lanka and Ecuador become so deeply in debt to China? Well, China is uh, has been now for some time touting something it calls the Belt and Road Initiative, the New Silk Road. And it has a land uh, aspect and it has a sea aspect. And so it has invested in port facilities in over 100 countries, uh, and that includes Sri Lanka. And what it did in Sri Lanka is kind of a model for how it operates in dozens of countries. It went to Sri Lanka and said, you know, you have um, a national debt. Uh, we will loan you a billion dollars to build a first-class port 
And if you sign the agreement, we will we will give you the money. We will also send over construction crews so you can pay us back the money we loan you, and you will wind up with a port that will generate revenue. Well, it turns out that no one did a market analysis to see if the port idea was really economically sustainable. And so the port loses money. Sri Lanka is unable to pay back the loan. And then you read, you know, Clause 28, I'm making the number up, uh, of the contract written in small print, which says that if you fail to pay back the loan, the port reverts to Chinese control. The tragedy each time I listen to you and every time I read your writings and, and those of others is that the Vatican has helped enable this bullying that you've written about for years and the conquering of the world by China. That is um, really astounding to me, given all we know. Uh, Steve, thanks, as always, for being here. The latest edition of Bully of Asia by Stephen Mosier, really the definitive work on China's plans for global dominance, still available in bookstores everywhere and online. And you can follow Steve on Twitter at Stephen W. Mosier. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Christians are being persecuted around the world in record numbers, and that persecution is making its way west. What's driving it, and what can we do about it? Joining me to discuss is the Rome Bureau Chief for Breitbart and author of the new book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and What You Can Do About It. Please welcome Thomas Williams back to the program. Tom, thank you for being here. I want to start with the book uh, where you write that Christian persecution reached an unprecedented level at the end of 2020, when one in eight Christians experienced persecution and discrimination on average. Some 345 Christians are murdered around the globe each month because of their beliefs. And Pew Research found that Christians undergo harassment in 145 out of the 198 countries in the world, a significant higher number than just about any other single religion. Which, which countries do you think are the most dangerous to be a Christian today, and why are we seeing Christians targeted there? Well, this is really kind of the sleeper story of the decade, Raymond. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that because th these are these st statistics are real, and it's something that most people are simply unaware of. Uh, and to give you one example, you're asking where it's particularly dangerous to be a Christian. Let's take the example of Nigeria, where it is most likely, if you're a Christian, that you will actually mm. be killed for your faith. Uh, this is something that there are deaths on a weekly basis in Nigeria, so much so that it's not even reported by news outlets anymore because it's just so commonplace. And in this case, it's driven, as we know, by is Islamic extremism, the radical Islamic. There's the Boko Haram movement up in the north. You've got the Fulani Raiders in, in what they call the Middle Belt in Nigeria. But it's extraordinarily dangerous. The, the, there are attacks with machetes and uh, buildings and villages. Entire villages are torched when it's known that Christians live there. It's something that is targeting specifically people who share a Christian belief. Mm. Many Christians, especially those living in the U.S. and Western Europe, would not see themselves, Thomas, persecuted or discriminated against. What would you say to them? What are they missing here? Well, I think there are two things, Raymond. One is we have to stand shoulder, and shoulder, shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters around the world who actually are suffering violent and aggressive persecution. Secondly, um, at least from my vantage point, it's even more disturbing what I see happening in the West, where the attitude toward Christians is evolving so quickly at such an accelerated pace that now Christians who used to be kind of the backbone of society was looked upon as a good thing to be a Christian. Now Christians are often mm -hmm. 
tarred as bigots, as homophobes, as people who are closed-minded, intolerant, narrow-minded, obscurantist, all these different things we hear flung at Christians just because we believe in Jesus Christ and believe in the moral teaching of the Bible. Hmm. I, I want to look at Europe for a moment. Uh, we have seen in the past several years, uh, I've seen it myself, I know you have, in, in France, Germany, recently in northern Italy, churches being desecrated and even destroyed. Who is doing this and why do we not hear more about these attacks in the media or an outcry from the Christians in those countries? They seem to just kind of be very blasé about this destruction happening in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities. Well, that's interesting because the government actually has a policy. Take the example of France. They have a policy to not reveal the motivations behind these attacks. They don't want you to know what is causing them. And so there's a lot of speculation. We know that in a number of cases, uh, there is, again, Muslim extremism. Uh, in, the, in the case of profanation and, and desecration, both of churches and of burial grounds, of cemeteries. But also, there's a radical form of secularism uh, that really sees religion and Christianity in particular as really an obstacle to progress, an obstacle to the agenda that they wish to promote. And so the, a lot of the aggression against Christians is also coming from that sector. Mm. I, I want to move on to something that I, I read recently from Bob Fu. Now, he's president of a watchdog group, China Aid. He's a convert to Christianity. He was imprisoned in China for leading an underground house church and not registering with the Chinese Patriotic Association. In a recent interview, he said he was seeing the same tactics in Western nations that the Chinese Communist Party uses to crack down on churches and that sometimes the tactics used were straight out of the Chinese Communist playbook. He said, quote, the U.S. is increasingly exhibiting dictatorial attitudes, both culturally and politically, by censoring speech, enforcing woke culture, and not tolerating dissent. I saw the governor of California basically prescribe and order the church to shut down and say not only when they can worship, but how. The ways that he threatened to punish those churches and pastors sometimes were word for word exactly the same as the CCP is using against the Chinese churches, end quote. Your reaction to that uh, connection, Tom? Well, I find it incredibly disturbing, but I think Bob Fu is exactly right. Uh, I read his stuff, too, and I also follow very closely what's happening with the churches in China. Uh, it's been called an Orwellian surveillance state because they have cameras put up in churches. They now have an app, a government app, that you need to register with, and you need to get permission every single time you want to go to church. You, there's no blanket permissions. It has to be every time. So they know what church you're attending, how often you go, and they also know the content of what is being preached, and they make sure that it has to cohere with the, the, the Maoist ideology uh, behind the Communist Party there. We're seeing the same thing in the United States in the sense that there have been all these revelations in recent weeks about the FBI first targeting uh, yeah. pro-life protesters. Secondly, uh, that, that document about Latin mass goers as somehow being likely to be uh, white supremacists and tied to Christian nationalism. And, and so, you know, giving them a right to also plant listeners, plant people, agents dressed undercover in churches to listen to what is being preached. Exactly the same thing we see in China. 
Yeah. Uh, Tom, you're the Rome correspondent for Breitbart. You've covered the Vatican for several years. I want to talk for a moment about that Vatican-China deal, which we've reported on extensively. Why would the Vatican make a deal with communists, rather than call them out for the suffering they inflict on persecuted Christians, especially those in, in the Catholic flock? And beyond China, why do you not hear more from the Holy See on this topic of persecuted Christians globally? Well, this is this is an enormous problem, as you know, and I, I'm sure I, I share I share in your evaluation of what the Vatican has done in this case, and I think it's atrocious. I think you really have thrown the very faithful Catholics in China that you know six million to twelve million number of underground mm -hmm. Catholics who have always been faithful to Rome. And suddenly, they no longer have the support of the Holy See. And, I, and it's absolutely terrible. And it's leaving many of them completely out in the cold, because now it looks like they're obstinate mm. because they don't want to join the Catholic Patriotic Association, which is government-run and which has always been hostile to, to, to Rome. They consider themselves an independent yeah. church. So I think— uh, you know, the motivations behind it, if we want to listen and just take uh, the Vatican at its word, it's this idea of culture of encounter and dialogue. It's better to be sitting at a table than, you know, standing, looking at each other from across the room. Uh, but the problem is what we've seen since 2018, when this agreement was first signed, things have actually gotten worse, not better for Christians in China. Mm. There is more persecution, there's more abuse, and there's more surveillance going on of everything that's happening. Yeah, well, when you're seated at a table where they're slaughtering the people that are in your flock, that's not a table you probably should be sitting at. But uh, just to finish up, Tom, as a follow-up, why the reluctance, do you think, uh, on the Vatican's part for speaking out of the, about these global atrocities of persecution happening, whether it be in the Middle East or in China or in other parts of the world? Well, I think that the Pope himself... Uh, he reports on and he criticizes certain abuses, and then he is silent about others. And it really depends on what his relationship is with the people behind it. I think that's, unfortunately, the truth of it. For example, back in 2016, 2017, when there were these cases of slaughters by uh, the Islamic State and others, that was a time when the pope was saying there's no such thing as uh, Muslim persecution. This is not something that Muslim terror groups do not exist. He was saying, if we talk about that, then we have to admit that there are Christian terror groups and we're just as bad as they are. There are certain things he doesn't want to acknowledge because he doesn't want to offend those particular groups. China is another great example of that. He has not even been willing to call out yeah. the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region there, simply because he is unwilling uh, to do anything that could irritate the Chinese and make them stand up from the table when he's desperately looking for diplomatic relations there. Hmm. In your book, you write that things will get worse before they get better. And you say, quote, as the number of those who hate Christians or hold them in contempt is growing, Christianity in the West is flagging, and the will to speak out against Christian persecution or even acknowledge its existence is waning. And though the enemies of Christ, radical Islam, virulent secularism, atheistic communism, grow stronger every day, the determination to resist them is flagging. Why do you think it's flagging, Tom? And you point out that radical secularism is well, far a far greater threat in the West than, say, radical Islam. 
Absolutely. That's exactly the way it is. That's the central thesis of this book, is that we're seeing right now a perfect storm of Christian persecution, because the drivers of persecution, whether it's Hindu nationalism in India, whether it's radical Islam, whether it's this growing, very, very hostile form of secularism in the West, these are all getting stronger by the day. And the will to resist, and especially uh, the appreciation for religious freedom as the first freedom, as the most important of human rights, uh, is something that is dwindling and, and dying. Because we see, for example, in the West, we see the LGBT lobby, we see uh, the, the abortion lobby, we see groups that do not want Christians to be able to speak about biblical morality because they find it offensive to the agenda that they are trying to push. And so I think that you're seeing, and, and Christians themselves are finding themselves, you know, weakened, and they don't want to speak out, and they don't want to this ostracization that they're facing, and so they prefer to, to accommodate. There's also been a rise in the so-called nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, uh, the non-affiliated, non-religious people in the United States. Uh, not, they now make up over a quarter of the population, 28 percent in 2021. What effect do the nuns have on acceptance of traditional Christian values and appreciation of the religious liberty you just mentioned? Well, I think the nuns, unfortunately, religious liberty becomes less important for them than other basic liberties. They see churches and they see Christianity in general as just another voluntary association with no particular status uh, deserving any you know, care that is the, the founding fathers believe that it should have. I mean, I find it appalling. We're a nation that's founded on religious freedom, where we have the, the pilgrims. We call them pilgrims because they came in search of a place where they could worship God freely and practice their faith uh, in, in a tolerant situation. And now we have the West turning in on itself, and particularly in the United States, which has always been a very, very religious people, we're finding it less and less yeah. so. I saw when that number of nuns crossed over the one-quarter mark, that's extremely disturbing, because these are people with no, yeah, not well, only no affiliation, but no appreciation often. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the patterns, Tom, as you have for this book, uh, when you look at the patterns of Christian persecution, how does it evolve, and how is it made acceptable to the populace? Well, I think the way it evolves is you have to demonize a group before you can persecute them. You have to make them look bad. You have to make them look like the enemy. So you have cases where, the, where uh, Christians are more and more called narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful, uh, white supremacists, Christian nationalists, theocrats, all these different slurs used against Christians so mm -hmm. that ordinary people who didn't really care one way or the other before start seeing Christians as the enemy, as someone who's really getting in the way of a free America the way they understand it. That's always the first step, because that then allows you to become more aggressive, to become more uh, marginalizing and more ostracizing in your treatment of Christians to begin with. And that discrimination then easily passes on to something worse. Very good. We will leave it there. The coming Christian persecution, why things are getting worse and how to prepare for what is to come by Tom Williams is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Tom, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Raymond. Before we go, there's a new film starring Oscar winner Russell Crowe. He plays the late Father Gabriel Amorth, who served as the Vatican's chief exorcist. The movie, The Pope's Exorcist, opens this Friday, and it is inspired by the case files of Father Amorth. 
I interviewed Russell Crowe recently to discuss the film and how faithful it is to Father Amorth's work. Here's my exclusive interview with Russell Crowe and a clip. Exorcism is my job, but the vast majority of the cases to which I am assigned do not require an exorcism. In my observation, 98% of the cases that are assigned to Father Amorth are then further recommended by him to doctors and psychiatrists. And the other 2%? Uh, the other 2%. This is something that has confounded all of science and all of medicine for a very long time. I call it evil. Russell, thanks for your time. What initially sparked your interest in this project? I mean, how much did you know about exorcism in general and, and Father Amorth in particular before you agreed to appear in the movie? Well, I didn't really know anything about uh, Father Amorth. You know, once I started reading the script, <clears throat> there was a little sort of thing scratching at the back of my head where um, I thought I'd seen a little bit of a documentary on this guy or something, and it turns out that that was that Amorth is the man that uh, William Friedkin made the documentary about. So uh, I had seen a little bit of that, but uh, on first reading of the script, the thing that fascinated me was this man. And then I had to go and research who he was and find out a little bit about him. And, and that was really my prime motivator. Once I started finding out about the details of his life and the things that he'd experienced to get to where he got to, and, and once he was in the job of chief exorcist for the Vatican, the 36 years that he, he spent in that job, he's a fascinating character. There's always that tension between reality and artistic license, particularly when you're making a movie like this. How close did you try to get to the real Father Amorth from the stories that he relates in his books? Here's the thing, right? We're all adults in this room. We're talking about horror movies, and you're asking me to define the artistic license in the horror genre. Um, the entire thing is artistic license, isn't it? You know. Uh, however, right to ground this particular story, you know, given that there's such a rich vein of information available, we were able to take biographical details from a moth's life, and you know, not just to be in the film, but to be actual, actually part of the narrative, the narrative of the character. So the things that the character is going through uh, are actual episodes from his, his life, you know, the things that he's responding to. You know, I did a lot of reading about Gabriel Amorth. Um, I know that he has a purity of faith. I also know that he has a, a wonderful sense of humor. You know, I believe in him as a person. You know, he wrote 12 books from his first-person experience, so I've got to know that he wrote absolutely what he believed. Russell, how did the experience of working on this movie, portraying Father Amorth, did it have any effect on your personal faith and your sense of uh, the war between good and evil in the world? Well, I don't think it's affected it at all, you know. The thing about my gig, man, is you have to retain a level of objectivity. You know, you, you don't you don't disappear inside what you're doing. You know, you learn about it, but you still have to be the person, you know, the puppet master operating the strings, you know, if you want to do an emotional scene or whatever. There's a lot of technical stuff involved in that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily changed my perspective, you know, do I think evil exists in the world? Yes. You know, and you can see examples of that when you watch the nightly news. You can historically comb through 
hundreds and thousands of incidents of uh, evil where humans have afflict, in, inflicted you know, incredible suffering on other humans. So does it exist? A absolutely, you know. Um, the, the other questions that, that's come off that same subject matter in terms of, you know, religion and, and faith and what have you, you know, there, there's a million questions there too, you know what I mean? I'm not a, a person that grew up in a religious family. I didn't go to uh, Catholic school or I don't have that direct experience. I was never terrorized by nuns as uh, <laughs> some people tell me that their, their stories. Um, you know, so, uh, but I had my own inquisitiveness when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old and I used to spend my weekends going to different services, you know, just to sort of have some experience and understand, or, you know, or try to understand a little bit about, about what things are about. And the thing is, if you believe fundamentally that there is the existence of God, then you're going to create your own relationship. What would you say is the ultimate message of the film? And what do you want people to take away after they've left the theater? Well, look, I want them to be entertained, bottom line, you know what I mean? Um, I want them to have gone into a horror film and got a little bit scared because that's, that's what's written on the box, you know? And, and maybe you're scared enough to grab the person next to you or at least look at them and go, my God, did you see that? You know, that's the fun bit. I want them to, in a moment of tension, you know, have laughed out loud at something that uh, Father Gabriel Amor says in that moment of tension, you know. I want them to have enjoyed the experience. But there's other things inside this, man, about faith, you know, about being able to forgive yourself, uh, you know, about the sort of... Uh, clarity that you may receive, you know, um, by confessing, whether it's just to you or whether it's to a priest, that's completely, you know, up to the individual. But, you know, there is certainly a lot of things to think about and talk about in this film outside of the fact that it's just a horror movie. And as a priest who's writing a lambretta, what more do you need? I guess aside from gas, nothing. Thanks, Russell. Thanks for being here. Cheers, mate. The Pope's Exorcist presents the character of Father Gabriel Amorth, not the man himself. And as you heard, it is not a faithful representation of Father Amorth's work. It, it's not a biopic. It is an entertainment with a curious plot line that has been criticized by the International Association of Exorcists as, quote, unreliable splatter cinema, end quote. It was created as a horror movie, with bits of Father Amorth's story included here and there. For a more realistic look at the work of Father Amorth, one could revisit the aforementioned William Friedkin documentary, The Devil and Father Amorth. The Pope's Exorcist, meanwhile, starring Russell Crowe, opens in theaters on Friday, April 14th. On a far more uplifting note, next week, on April 20th, we will mark the centenary of Dear Reverend Mother Angelica. If you only know her from Mother Angelica Live, there is so much you don't know. To celebrate Mother's 100th birthday, Random House Image is releasing a new edition of my biography, Mother Angelica, the remarkable story of a nun, her nerve, and a network of miracles. It includes a new foreword by yours truly, and for the first time in years, the complete audiobook with new material is available at Audible from Random House. The new edition of Mother Angelica's biography is available from the EWTN catalog, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And it is a wonderful time to dive, I think, into her life, the three spiritual books I edited for Mother, as well as the sequel, the sequel to the biography, 
her grand silence, the last years and living legacy of Mother Angelica. Details are at RaymondArroyo.com. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week for a special tribute to Mother Angelica. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.